recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right. Hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. And we are very excited to have Diana Bialyets here today. She is a natural-born educator who gets into the hearts and heads of who she is teaching so that she can best convey her messages about light pollution. Currently, she is a teaching assistant and PhD student at the Department of Geography, Tourism, and Hotel Management at the Faculty of Sciences in Novi Sad, Serbia. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Diana, about all of your wonderful work towards our mutual pursuit. And we start every podcast with the same request which is, could you please tell us about a dark sky experience that you had that just moved you, that left you without words, that made you feel human and also like there was something much bigger than humanity? Yeah, well, uh, thank you for inviting me and thank for this lovely introduction you made. And uh, as for the experience, uh, well, I have to be honest, uh, when I experienced it, I wasn't aware of light pollution at all. I was at uh, some field trip with my students, colleagues, uh, in like 10 years ago. And uh, we were in some really rural area, dark area, and we were uh, coming back home after some long, long hiking, and we caught the dark, of course, and uh, it was so dark but so bright at the same time because i haven't seen so many stars in my life ever before and i actually mm. saw my shadow from the natural light so i was like oh, i love that fascinated i i've never seen that something like that before in my life and uh, i guess uh, it's a small seed where all that love has grown afterwards 
Wow. Star shadow. I learned that term actually from Nancy Clanton and it's just I've an learned amazing, it now. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing concept to think that the stars are light yeah. enough to produce a shadow. Yeah. Yeah. So you do a lot of work on light pollution. So how did you come upon light pollution? I guess we all have our, our ways of how we got to this topic. How did you get here? Well, to be honest, in Serbia, I haven't found any source that said anything about light pollution. And uh, in my fourth year of uh, bachelor studies, I uh, met a professor from uh, Maribor, Slovenia, uh, Professor uh, Igor Žiberna, and uh, he taught us some basic uh, uh, basic instructions on how to map light pollution using SQMs and uh, geographic informational systems. And uh, it was uh, really interesting to go out in the darkness with him, out in the dark in the city, and to take some measurements and to talk with him about some really, uh, shall I say, stupid lighting we had, lighting installations, which I've never seen before. <laughs> it's like I'd never noticed them and uh, at that point it seemed so obvious not to Mm. Right. use those lightnings anymore and I kind of um, got interested from that point forward and started uh, experiment experimenting and reading a lot about it myself and uh, like two or three months after I uh, wrote a paper for some student uh, conference and that was actually the first time anyone in Serbia talked about light pollution on some conference or any scientific level. Wow. And so I, I get this experience a lot, which is I walk people through the problem of light pollution for the first time. What's your experience when you kind of see that dawning with someone? Hmm. Uh, you're asking me about the people I'm teaching Yeah. and how they, When you see yeah. someone realize about light pollution for the first time, what's that experience like for you and for them? Hmm. For me, it's like exhilarating because uh, I think it gives, gives me strength to do all those uh, scientific, uh, popular scientific lectures all year. <laughs> and it, uh, it's kind of really, really, uh, I have a rush of adrenaline when I'm saying something and they're like, you see in their eyes, they're like, oh, how I haven't noticed this before. So basically, uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful for me. And for those people, they're similar, ha having similar experience as I have. Uh, like they start to see lightning, which is unnecessary, which is not, uh, shall I say again, stupid. And uh, uh, they, they start <laughs> asking me, uh, they always start asking me where they can read more and uh, how, what they can do about it. So basically, I haven't met any person uh, to whom I speak, spoke, and they haven't uh, ki show any kind of interest about it. So, yeah. So my, my, I'm coming at this from, I, I sell lighting every day and lots of outdoor lighting and I'm not until I started, you know, uh, helping Jane with this show. Um, I was not, I wouldn't have considered myself a dark sky advocate. I would have it, it considered myself somebody interested in, in the issue and pursuing it from a business perspective as an entrepreneur. Um, and so in the sales process, 
it is extremely difficult, almost impossible right now to convince people to embrace um, dark sky friendly or darkness friendly light fixtures on the on the exterior of their buildings. Okay. Um, but when I hear reports from Jane and I know what her uh, and from yourself, there is no citizen that you encounter when we point out these issues to them that doesn't embrace the issue. So my question to you is, and maybe for Jane as well, um, have you ever encountered pushback from anybody in any of your presentations or lectures or your educational events where someone said, you know what, is it really that important? Uh, isn't there more important issues that we need to relate with lighting? Or is it basically 99% of people embrace the issue and are interested in it? Well, uh, that's a good question because even though most of them are excited, uh, at least uh, as I was, uh, but uh, I don't think they're really ready to advocate uh, that much for light pollution comparing to other environmental issues, because we have a lot of environmental issues in Serbia regarding air, air pollution, water pollution, and uh, similar. So I think I think they think that it's a more pressing issue to talk about those kinds of pollution. Mm -hmm. And uh, light pollution is something that's uh, they, they can see, they can observe and accept it that exists, but they have time to deal with that when they deal with these most, more pressing issues. So um, what I always or usually say to them, it's like they don't have to have that schedule, time schedule for dealing with stuff like that. They can only just choose uh, to come with us and fight light pollution besides other forms of Pollution. So yeah, I think uh, they they accept the facts about light pollution, but mm -hmm. they are not so willing to act on it, uh, comparing to other forms of pollution. I would say that's a similar experience for me too, Diana. Which is that I never, when I walk people through the presentation that I wrote called "Starving for Darkness," which is the namesake for this podcast, I never have had anyone come to me afterwards saying, I don't believe you, this isn't real. Uh, you know, it provokes a deep sentiment in the listener that there suddenly is a cause that they weren't so aware of. I do completely agree with you that I would say when people are first learning about it, they don't know where to fit it in to the global climate crisis. And so, and I mean, quite frankly, in this safe space here, I think it's very underrated in terms of the impacts of light pollution as compared to other forms. I think they're all worrisome, but I don't think people are worried enough about light pollution. And that's something that's very hard to convey in the uh, initial learning with an individual. So you are the president and founder of the NGO Carpe Noctum. I love that name, Seize the Night. Um, tell us about the work that you do. Um, and you're so young, you're, you're making waves. I love it. So tell us what you do. Yeah, well, uh, as for uh, Carpe Noctum, um, we actually, uh, it's also a organization that is founded not only by students that I was, I was a student when I found it. And uh, 
but, but also by professors that kind of gave me support for all of it, especially my mentor for my PhD thesis, which is also about light pollution, <laughs> Boyan Jerchan. And uh, I kind of um, mixed up a group of really enthusiastic people, uh, young people that, were, that are not only enthusiastic about light pollution, because they did, haven't heard of it before, but they're enthusiastic about teaching people about science popularization, which is, as we can see in the last year, really important <laughs> when it comes mm -hmm. to vaccine and all of uh, those theories, which are absurd. So yeah, we, we kind of uh, gathered together and uh, did some show on researchers night and uh, talk with citizens about lightning. We held our lectures in darkness. We just uh, turned on several, several small light bulbs, which were shaded. And uh, of course, everyone was interested to see, uh, to see that workshop that is held in the darkness, because why would people do that? <laughs> so we, we gathered around that idea to teach people in fun and uh, interesting way which we uh, use to teach them in all our lectures or workshops or anything, everything. And uh, especially for those public events such as uh, Astro Hikes or mm -hmm. uh, festival we called Star Triathlon. <laughs> uh, we like those words, playing with words. It's called Star Triathlon. Uh, because um, stars are the first thing that you cannot see because of light pollution. It's most most mm. visual thing that you cannot observe anymore. But triathlon, because we wanted to emphasize uh, or, or or to explain our problem through three uh, themes. One is mm. uh, astronomy and astrophysics. The other is nature and our environment. And the third is art and aesthetics. So basically at our festival, we talked about light pollution uh, with uh, scientists. Um, we had like um, camping with scientists. We had mm -hmm. uh, small fires like three of them, uh, and uh, we put our scientists from college and our students, which were talking about different subjects, like uh, astrophysicists were talking about the importance of darkness and uh, astronomy observations. And uh, on the other campfire were biologists talking about effects of light pollution on the environment. And on the third fire we actually called uh, psychologists to talk people about wow. their fear of darkness yeah and uh, we before those campfires we had the night hike in the area of national park and uh, after those lectures we had jazz band playing mm -hmm. silently in the background and uh, some dance around the fire so basically we kind of um, approach this subject from three angles and uh, yeah uh, uh, what i wanted to say i wanted to say that our all of our activities are fun and engaging uh, in order to get people to follow us and this is why i started the podcast by saying you're a natural born educator because you are not only talking the talk but you are actually walking it as in you are bringing people around a fireside which is part of our evolution 
And part of what isn't light pollution is having that nighttime fire for bonding and intimacy. And you've brought that right into your work. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. So uh, you talk a lot about how you strategize in delivering your message. And um, with that, you have a phrase, bring back the stars to our kids. Why this phrase? Because I think it's the most emotional thing we can do. Um, I think it's the the most important thing we can do because kids these days, they most of them haven't experienced the natural darkness, uh, starry skies, or anything like that. And we actually had a, a astro hike. We call them astro hikes. It's basically night hike in the woods in the national park. And uh, during one of our astro hikes, uh, girl that saw so many stars were was fascinated and she used her phone to picture it and turn on the <laughs> flashlight and yeah. <laughs> it's like she's not informed she doesn't know so mm -hmm. it, it 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 got down on me to see how how those kids are actually not uh, they they cannot even um, see the problem so basically yeah. we wanted to say that uh, kids uh, should learn about light pollution in schools and we wrote a brochure which with like 50 or 60 pages uh, uh, where we explain what light pollution is using very nice graphics and design and really easy to read text and uh, we gave it to more than 400 schools in our district so yeah we like to have a lot of lectures to the high schools and elementary schools so this is actually one of our main uh, main activities i think it's absolutely fantastic that you're targeting children this really speaks to one of my great hopes which is that light pollution and all the concepts around it will be common knowledge the way that we know smoking cigarettes is bad for us and that's through education it's not intuitive doctors in the 50s were like sure have a cigarette it's not a big deal so that's kind of where we're at with light pollution. So I love that you're bringing this information to the young minds to be able to get this in, into their heads early as a, as a common sense concept. And uh, you, I just wrote this down because you wrote scientific popularization. And so I just wrote it down as SIPOP. If that's not an expression already, it should be because that's what you're doing, Diana. I, you know, I think... A lot of times scientists have trouble communicating their ideas outside of science. And the fact that you're bringing in graphic design, uh, brand strategy to get this information out, I, that's amazing. How, what's been the impact that you've seen from, from your work and your brand strategy? Well, uh, we are not uh, really the experts in this in this field. We, so we had to read a lot and to learn a lot, even though it's not our main job. Uh, my main job is working as a teaching assistant. My colleagues are also researchers, and uh, one uh, few of them are uh, how do you say legal. Uh, like they are in the legal and uh, some mm. of them are journalists so basically maybe three of us are 
having our interest in like research field is light pollution. But uh, we learned a lot through this process because we realized that people are having better reaction when graphics are really nicely designed, easy to read, uh, mm-hmm. when we use similar colors, when we actually, I, I, I think it's the basic brand, brand strategy. So uh, when we use such um, a strategy to approach them they are responding really well and i think that uh, it is really important for all ngos or enthusiasts as individuals to learn those things because you can talk as much as you want and uh, speak about your ideas if you don't get to the people and if you don't say your ideas right and when i say right uh, say i mean uh, design the music you use in your background videos or anything like that it it won't work because there's too many information and materials outside that you have to fight for attention so yeah we we strategize a lot about our messaging and uh, stuff like that so i think it's giving us a pretty good response so far yeah so i I think that you know what we're getting at is um while there's a lot of science out there the 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 word in the last year the word science um has become a little bit of a prickly word um you know and it, it's been in some ways used as a mallet um to hit people with and and i think i was listening to a um a uh, podcast with a guy named ian mcgilchrist who is a, a neuroscientist and he said that he sees largely the problem with science as an expression and as it relates to the general public is this separation of metaphysics and philosophy and science. And somehow, you know, people have, have separated these two things into separate disciplines. But if science doesn't have access to philosophy or metaphysical expression or something along those lines, it has no purpose to people. It doesn't inspire them towards anything. Right. So if somebody is studying something and saying, well, this is the science of it um, and there's no there's no meaning. It doesn't drive meaning into individuals. It doesn't make them understand their world better. Um, I think it fails in its purpose, which is, you know, this I'm going to use the word enlightenment. Um, And so we have a lot of problems with that. And so you're dealing with apathy you're dealing with scientists, you're educating people, and you're trying to bring those two worlds together. But what, what I've, what's a little bit discouraging to me, and I hear this from Jane as well, is that, yes, they come together, people have this beautiful experience, and then there's apathy after. And where they, they kind of forget about it and go back to their lives and... It's almost like we need a society-wide endarkenment, like we need the opposite of the enlightenment. <laughs> we need like an endarkenment where people, because what's left over from our, our primordial past is the fear of darkness. And what we've lost is the reverence of it and the awe of it. And so that has been forgotten, but the fear is not forgotten. The unknown part of it is still, in fact, it's probably been expanded and by a magnitude, how do you deal, my question to you, Diana, is how do you deal with the fear of darkness when around those fires? Like people are afraid of the dark, let's face it. 
um, in cities and in, you know, when they're in the forest, if they've never been in the forest in the dark before, they become scared immediately. That is our biggest hurdle is to get past this fear. How do you deal with that in your seminars? Well, um, I actually have a story to tell about exactly that uh, stuff. And the uh, first time we organized our astro hike, uh, there were like five of us and we were talking about uh, calling people to go with us into the darkness on some really nice uh, track uh, trail. And uh, we, we want, thought that there will be like 20 to 30 people, but uh, 150 of them showed up. <laughs> and we were yeah pretty pretty amazed and scared at the same time <laughs> because you're going into the woods under the mountains with uh, too many people but uh, it was really good experience because um, when we walked to that uh, part when we are entering the woods it was still like uh, sunsetting and the people were talking loudly, laughing and uh, stuff like that. But when we stopped at uh, before entering the woods where there was dark already, they all stopped in dead silence. Like no one told them to be quiet, <laughs> but they stopped talking. And when we entered mm. woods, everyone was whispering. And what, what changed? <laughs> uh, I think that they were only scared and uh, it's not like we have bears or wolves over there. The only thing that can get in your way is maybe some scared rabbit. And um, they, they didn't have no reason to, to uh, start uh, uh, to stop talking. So after like maybe tw uh, 15 or 20 minutes, they kind of relaxed and started talking again. So I think they, uh, the people need to be comfortable into the darkness, to feel that uh, they can spend some, some time in the darkness and not to feel scared. So that, uh, that's our basic idea when we organize those public events uh, in the dark. And uh, in that festival, we used a really small amount of lightning because we wanted to make really nice uh, energy and the atmosphere with jazz music in the background, in the woods, uh, making them feel like they own that darkness, like they're in their natural mm. habitat, even though it's not the truth and we will always be uh, a bit scared of darkness, but uh, just to make them feel a bit less alienated from that nighttime environment. So I think that um, our main message is not to not fear darkness. You should fear and you should respect it because uh, we are diurnal beings and we will never be completely adjusted to the darkness. But we should respect it uh, because it's, it's an integral part of our life and we need it. So uh, it, that's our message. We don't want to turn off all the lightning and go back to the Middle Ages. We want to make it as minimal as possible and to teach them how they can pay their respect to their darkness to, and how to bring it more more their darkness in uh, in the in their lives so yeah we are we are always using when you said that uh, science is a bit dry when you say science says that and that um, yeah it doesn't work that way <laughs> uh, actually tomorrow i'm uh, having also another lecture for my students 
and uh, I'm teaching them uh, through music. I'm holding like science popular musical lecture about light pollution, where I'm presenting uh, most uh, important issues through some of the songs which are widely popular. Like, um, uh, uh, I wear my sunglasses at night and then I put an owl <laughs> <laughs> that wears glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and I teach them about that. Why? Why an, an owl needs glasses? And I think it's uh, a bit hmm. more approachable to them. They are like feeling really nice, and they are amused, and they are more likely to talk about that lecture afterwards. Uh, then. If I said them, uh, science says that uh, sea turtles are rapidly decreasing. Um, you get it. So basically, I think that fun and uh, the, the creativity behind uh, science should uh, do the work when talking to people. I, I totally use cute animals myself, and I tell my audience that I'm deliberately manipulating them with photos of cute animals. Um, so it works. You know, people are not as attracted to a dung beetle as they are to an owl, um, but they both have stories to tell us about light pollution. And so I think it's great that you're kind of delving into a slight personification of animals to open up the hearts and heads of, of people to think more about what's happening to wildlife. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I also love the way that you describe darkness and our relationship to it. I think you're absolutely right. We're never going to eradicate fear around darkness. We can develop a respect for it, though, and I think a reverence as well. But you're right. We are diurnal animals and we are active mostly during the day. So I think that that's a really amazing uh, line to draw of expectation of what you can expect people to feel about darkness. It's more reasonable than saying straight up reverence because there is that aspect of, of fear that's always going to be well, there. Fear is reverence. It's the same thing. It's also true. You know, like it, when, you're, true. when you're afraid of something, you revere it. And that's why a sunny day at the beach, you don't, I mean, people don't talk about the sublime while they're at the beach. They may talk about it at a cliff looking down on the beach, on a mountaintop, you know, where there's an element of danger to it. Um, that's fundamental to awe and reverence is that, is that fear. Um, I, I don't know how, how far we can get Jane and Di Diana with anthropomorphizing animals. I, I think there's a limit to it. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you know, here's the penguins. Oh, penguins, you know, or here's the, uh, the, the cuttlefish in the, you know, whatever. We pick these particularly cute animals. We personify them and say, hey, look, they're struggling. You know, I think that endears some, some sympathy, um, um, perhaps more pity than sympathy. Um, you know, what, what can we do for the turtles? I'm going to run onto the beach and push them the right way, like a form of pity. It doesn't endear respect for nature, which is what we need. You know, we need respect for the natural environment, for darkness. How do we, like, if we want to create this movement, because Jane and I always call this a movement, the darkness movement, how do we reach people and sort of shake them and say, look, this is the probably the, the most solvable environmental problem we have. It is real pollution. It's real. And we can fix it now. Um, unlike a lot of the other problems that we have that are largely not fixable. 
Um, people are like when you when I when I encounter people on climate change that you'll say, oh yeah, I believe I I think that we should you know have clean energy, but they don't want to do nuclear energy. Okay, it's like ah, then you want to change. You want to go back to the Middle Ages, like you said. If we, you know if we can't have grid scale power. You know, humans are going to take a big step back. So it's like that unrealistic part. Whereas with this darkness issue, we can solve it and have all the safe streets we want. There's no, those two things are not, they're not against one another. Good lighting and safety and darkness are not opposite to one another. They totally can be done. How do we get, anthropomorphizing is probably the first stage, but how do we get past that into a place where we really speak to people and get their attention? Well, uh, as I said, our one of our main um, ideas is to talk to kids and to talk to their parents that their kids will never experience the dark skies. I think that that's the element which will provoke people of our ages and uh, maybe not too many teenagers will react to that notion, but uh, people that are decision makers will... Um, they would stop for a moment to think about it. I always like to give uh, examples of, I think that every light pollution fighter talks about 1994 LA earthquake when people called to uh, talk about that uh, sinister sky above them, not knowing that it's a Milky Way. Yeah, I, I think that that's not a great thing that happened, but great reference for us to say that... Uh, <laughs> It's it can really happen that we can really shift our baseline towards darkness. So basically, um, I think that uh, when talking to people, we should let them know what uh, uh, we should touch them, touch their feelings when talking about darkness. And not only that, we can also provide them with uh, enough uh, ridiculous and stupid uh, examples of lightning. I think that's even better because uh, I had a, I had an idea to uh, make a photo of a street where there are like uh, thousands, dozens of billboards, light billboards, LED billboards, and uh, to switch them with trees and to show them like is this really necessary? We can put those trees there and uh, have more ecological lightning, which could, uh, which will do us better. And uh, to show them some forms of lightning which are really stupid and they don't realize it, they don't see it because it became integral part of their urban environment. It's like we 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 uh, see darkness as something unnatural. And <laughs> this is totally crazy. So, yeah, I, I like to give them a, like a wake up call <laughs> and to mm -hmm. talk about the mm -hmm, I, I need a word for it, like nonsense that we are making with so many lightning uh, and to always say to them that uh, we don't fight against the lightning we fight against stupid lightning so yeah mm -hmm. i think that's uh, maybe one of the best way to approach it i'm going to expand on something mike you said about the animals um which is that cute animals isn't enough uh it's not enough uh cute or otherwise wildlife has never been enough 
So that's that's the problem is that if wildlife and what we are actually doing across the planet with light pollution and lots of other forms of climate change, if that were enough, we wouldn't be here. So I don't mind throwing in a cute animal or two just to try and make it a little bit more helpful. Um, but I, I know, um, Diana, that you talk about your unique branding strategy. Um, and this kind of cuts into, I think, if we really want to make a difference, we have to put this in terms of the human loss, which is why you yes. are saying things like your children are not seeing the stars for the emotionally gripping truth yes. of that, because that's how you will get to people to change is if you talk about the human loss and what's the loss for their children. So how do you bring in aspects of health to your work and your branding strategy? Well, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but uh, over our Instagram account, Facebook account, we post like three or four times a week with like uh, facts about light pollution where we just trigger their imagination with uh, why you shouldn't use your phone before sleep. How many hours are you affected with uh, self-luminous devices Mm, after you put it down and go to sleep mm, how many uh, what is the percentage of uh, uh, car carcinome diseases if you don't have enough uh, balanced uh, circadian rhythm and uh, stuff like that we basically uh, teach them uh, about the possible outcomes of not having enough darkness in their lives but i think what strikes them the most is that usage of uh, icts and uh, the self-luminous devices before going to bed i think that's the part where most parents are Mm, maybe a bit more interested to hear because of their kids, of course, and our, of course, we as well. And uh, I think that that's one of the ways to approach it. And uh, maybe uh, we can actually use ICTs and uh, technological uh, technology itself to get them out there to use their astronomy apps or something like that. Loss of the night is a wonderful idea to get people to measure it on their own, to feel like uh, they're participating something. So I think that uh, uh, this is maybe one of the most usual ways we approach promoting health life in uh, urban nighttime environment. And when uh, Diana, so we're, we get in trouble for using too many acronyms. ICT would be information and communications technology for those yeah. listening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so she's talking about your iPad or your laptop or your phone or whatever. Yeah. So I, um, I'm from the lighting industry, and I do a podcast called Get a Grip on Lighting. Um, and so we've yeah, interviewed a I lot saw. of. Well, thank you. So um, we 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 interview a lot of scientists. Okay, about human centric lighting, circadian photobiology, all these kind of all this, this, this sort of theme that's within the lighting industry now. And there's a lot of investment in technology to create lighting systems which aid in circadian entrainment, okay? But you, the most interesting part of all of this, and um, you know, some of the sponsors of Get a Grip on Lighting don't like it when I say this, but natural darkness and darkness is the fundamental tenant of anything related to human-centric lighting. There's... It is almost 99% of the argument. 
right? So when people are talking about, oh, we're going to give you a 0.3 circadian stimulus in the morning at 5,000 Kelvin, then we're going to lower that to 0.1 circadian stimulus at this time, and the Kelvin temperature is going to be this, and at high noon, we're going to raise the lighting to this. It begs all manner of questions like, well, do I need sunglasses inside then? Because I, apparently I needed sunglasses outside. And, you know, I, or do I need sunscreen inside with these new, you know, it begs all manner of questions like that. But at the end of the day, if someone does not restore darkness when they come, when it comes time for sleep and even before sleep, like you need darkness leading up to it, all of the gains from human centric lighting are lost. There's no gain if you don't do that. And so, and then subsequent to that, Every health effect that is listed as being helped by human-centric lighting or circadian photobiology are all benefits of better sleep. That's it. Human-centric lighting delivers better sleep, which then you have all these other things, lower cancer rates, less stress, less anxiety. Um, all the other things are extensions of that. And so to me, the number one issue in the lighting industry is darkness, providing darkness getting that to people and getting that into people's heads. The the point, the question I want to ask you as a relation to that, so you could add sort of some of that specific stuff to your message that there are real human health impacts from having your phone in your face at night. It's very real. Um, although it's like a chronic low level kind of real, like sort of like a low poison in the water or something like that. But yeah. how do we get past this cult of safety? And safety is another one of those words like in the last year, like science, that has kind of lost its meaning in a way. You know, people talk about safety and, you know, I think people are becoming, and especially in a place like Ontario, which is under extreme restrictions right now, they talk about safety and they're not sure what that means anymore. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that does safety mean um, other people are safe or does it mean I'm safe? And so, with lighting, you have the same issue. You have this 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 safety cult um, that's formed in lighting, where there's no maximum light levels. And the mo the most amount of uniformity is the best uniform light everywhere. Light trespass is not considered real trespass. Light pollution is not considered real pollution. All these things are like, yeah, that's nice. How do we get to the the people that are in charge of the safety cult, and 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 get them to leave it? Because it, it's a cult, man, in lighting, um, in the lighting industry, that dare, you dare not trespass on our lighting. We need this back lot of the factory lit up like a prison yard all night long, or we're going to get sued. Someone's going to sue us. The insurance company doesn't like it. They're all members of a cult that believe a fallacy that we need to change. How do we how do we get to that? And I mean, that's that's really the challenge for for the darkness movement. Is really to, is really to get people out of the cult of connecting outdoor light at night, high Kelvin temperature light, uniform light, as much light as possible. Get them out of the cult and into the new, better lighting design world. That's my question. I don't know if, if it's for for Jane or for the industry or for Diana, but it's a cult, man, and you people need to really get out of it. There. I yeah. have a, a redirect Boy. for you, Diana. That sifts down what Mike has just been saying, which is that you have a whole theory about bringing on guests who are like-minded to your work. And you spoke of a, a bicycler, a female bicycler, who talked about the perils of darkness. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about that with regard to Mike's um, safety talk? Yeah. 
Well, uh, uh, first of all, I wish I had an answer, Mark. <laughs> I, 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 I wish and I let you know when I have it because I, I agree completely with you about that cult of uh, uh, feeling safe uh, under the highly illuminated areas. Yeah, uh, and as for the Snežana Rodojčić, I'm uh, inviting all of you to follow her because she also puts uh, some posts on in English and she is currently at the South America and she will be coming to North America. Uh, she started her trip uh, in March when COVID started. <laughs> so it was quite a journey for her. And uh, as, for, as for the lecture she was uh, holding, uh, we wanted to, in Serbia, we don't have too many speakers, uh, or, I mean, guests, which are really close to the light pollution issue. I mean, we don't have them, <laughs> so we needed to improvise. And uh, uh, it showed as a really good uh, uh, thing, uh, actually, because uh, we needed to be more creative when talking to people. So we thought hardly about who to invite and uh, that person is not a scientist or anyone, but more of a like um, uh, person that people like to hear about, to learn about her lifestyle and etc. So we talked and uh, the actually wanted to talk about with uh, Snežana Radojčić and uh, ask her if she would like to tell something more about her experiences in darkness. And we were a bit afraid because uh, she's a female cyclist going through all Asia and uh, northern, uh, southern par parts of Europe. And uh, we ourselves actually expected to hear some crazy, scary stories as well. And uh, when we talked to, with her about it, she was like, no. I didn't have any experience, <laughs> bad experiences during the night. <laughs> she had bad experiences dur during the day <laughs> because uh, she met a lot of people during the day. During night, nobody went to her tent or tried to do anything funny with her. And uh, I think uh, she actually... Talk, uh, showed people that you can be a female cyclist uh, going into the Gobi Desert uh, in the middle of nowhere and uh, stargazing under a magnificent night sky and you will be safe there. No one will touch you because you're just uh, going through some really nice landscapes. Well, uh, people should be really... Um, I don't know how to uh, talk to them about it because they expect when it's dark, you will be attacked. Uh, uh, it's like a uh, premise. If, if I don't have lightning, I will for sure, I will be under some sort of attack. And uh, this is not true because uh, in Novi Sad, uh, mo the safest parts of the cities are probably in dark and in some areas where people are sleeping, there are some residential buildings and no one is going around there like in 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. But when you go to the city center and uh, visit some maybe uh, problematic clubs and areas where people are drinking and celebrating something, those areas are a bit more, uh, let's say, uh, 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 alarming. So they shouldn't... Uh, 
think that the darkness is equal to the criminal. They should think that those specific clubs, areas, and ca cafes are equal to the criminal if they're gathering criminal groups of people. So I think that that should be, people should talk about it a bit more to make some sort of a map of criminal activities during the day or mm. during the night and to show them that uh, some parks in the city are not the most uh, dangerous places, but the city center is, you know, where there mm. are people, there could be uh, 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 some sort of criminal activities. There are, so, you know, yeah. there, there are areas where people should be careful. I'm not going to, you know, tell people to, you know, go lay in a park in downtown Toronto. But I, I would say that, um, well, there's no stars to see there anyway, um, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what, you know, in places that are naturally uh, dark, that there's natural darkness, they, the, the, the preponderance of people that are going to cause problems, they're just not there. There's not a lot of people there. But I, the correlation between alcohol and um, violence at night and drugs and violence at night are is very well proven. So if you stay away from places where people are drinking alcohol um, or and you're not... So most people are assaulted at night by drunk people or are drunk themselves. I mean, even the, I mean, even the college campuses of America, you, you, you listen to the reports, it's always, we were at this keg party and then this happened, you know, or people were drinking, you know, 21-year-olds were drinking whiskey for the first time and then this happened, you know, and so... There's a there's a real connection between alcohol and violence at night, which is not uh, not laid out well enough for people that they need to know that. Um, and then being in areas where lots of people are drinking, you significantly increase chances of problems of all manner of different kinds of violence and and that. Um, so yes, uh, that's a that's interesting. Her name is Snejana. What's her last name? Snejana. Did I get it right? Uh, Radojic. Oh, I can send you her. Yeah, we'll post it on the we'll post it on the on the thing. So a lot of people are gonna have problems nice. with the the Snejana. That's a tough yeah. one for for uh, <laughs> it's English a, It's a in Ciclo Nomad. So okay. I think it would be easier to find it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. Her Instagram and Facebook account. Dispelling the fears of the night, Jane Slade. That's a tough one, man. Yeah, it's not easy. And I think that, Diana, what you're doing is that you are really developing a community across generations. And I think that's just absolutely fantastic because they, I mean, you're not in a school for branding, but you certainly are uh, becoming an expert at it because you're hitting all the right sides of it, which is logos, colors, uh, emotional attachment, um, creating community, creating a sense of place. So you're doing all of this. I want to ask you, why does night matter to you? I guess... Uh... When I heard about light pollution, it was because it was something new to me. It was something that uh, I think that at that point, it struck me the most that I haven't see realized it. So it was as more I learn about it, I learned more things I am grateful for and when it comes to darkness. So right now I have like dozens of reasons I, I like to spend some uh, time in the darkness and to respect it and to uh, 
talk to people how they should respect it as well. So I think that uh, the sight and the scenery of a night sky and uh, a starry night sky above us is one of the crucial things that should be pres preserved, especially for the future generations, which is why, why I'm so keen on, yeah, let's bring stars back to the children. But uh, I think that not only the night sky scenery, but also the notion of uh, not respecting the wildlife and other forms of living beings and taking them their night away, for me, is like uh, bringing the night in, in, during our entire existence for us, like, like putting our, putting us a mask over the face and not letting us live like we should live. That's like for the nocturnal being. So I, I think that that's kind of the most important thing for me now. The, uh, you said the word gratitude, which is very interesting. Yeah. I listened to, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Roland. Roland Griffith, Griffiths, okay? That's his name. He's a PhD scientist at John Hopkins University. And you know what he studied, Jane? Psychedelic what? drugs, okay? Ooh. And so he experimented. He got a, uh, a permission to do a study, I think in the late 90s, on the use of psilocybin as, um, as a psychedelic experience and it was under controlled, you know, it was um, a controlled experiment. And what he did was he gave people psilocybin, okay, in a dark room um, with no lights on and just some music, okay. And he recorded their experiences. And you wouldn't believe how closely their experiences align with people who talk about dark sky experiences. It's almost like the same thing is happening without the drugs, that idea of being gra having gratitude, feeling awe at, the, at the, the, the universe and their place in it and, and being able to step back with humility and, and look at the world and how closely those things align. And it's interesting to me that if humans actually look at their history, Dayan, like the Great Pyramid of Giza points at the, at the North Star, some, um, the, the middle star of Orion's belt, every 12,000 years and the Sphinx looks at the constellation Leo at the same night exactly perfectly and there's um, you know all manner of structures in ancient world where the sun shines in exactly into the cave on um, on uh, uh, on the summer solstice perfectly illuminating the inside of these caves our ancestors were very aware of the stars i mean you hear about sacrifices people burning their best lamb and sending the smoke up to the heavens because that's where god was that's what the the awe and the beauty was i think you're right that you, you you're the only way to this is to restore that gratitude or give people back that sense of a place in the universe. And it doesn't come from grandiose egotistical narcissism that, that we have a lot of. It comes from the opposite, which is like a sense of gratitude and humility and seeing the vastness of the universe. And I, I think that what you're doing is such a wonderful service to the world, Jane. I just can't. It's so wonderful. Yeah, it's beautiful to see the community that you're building and that you are really bringing this information to families mm -hmm. to the basic unit of our society i think that that's such a great way to really bring this learning and relearning between people it's not just that i know it by myself but i know it with you i know it with you my brother my sister my parents 
So it becomes really entrenched in, in how we kind of move through the world. I think the way that you're approaching it from an education standpoint is brilliant. So what's Thank on the you. horizon I... for your work? Yeah, well, uh, I wanted to add uh, for for what Mike said and you as well, uh, is that uh, I think that maybe I left out and maybe it's also really important that uh, people, when they are surrounded by darkness in uh, natural surroundings, they don't have too many um, things they observe with their eyes because it's dark. They are not triggered. They cannot, uh, they are not always uh, in their heads thinking about things. They are like more into themselves. And the only sight that uh, provides them with light is the light of the uh, our night sky. So basically, I think that's where our uh, questions and our wonderings are starting to show up. So that's why people have always <laughs> gazed into the night skies. And uh, I think that uh, in our uh, hikes and uh, our public events that are in the darkness and in the woods, uh, this is also one of the most important things because uh, people are in the darkness and they can only rely on their on each other. You know, they they don't see exactly where they are going. They need to trust uh, trust us. They need to trust the person be, be, before them and after them to warn them, warn them about some, I don't know, mud or hole or something like that. So I think that's uh, where we are more emotionally fragile when we are scared a bit and we need to trust each other. And that's where the stronger bonds are created. And uh, I think that's why they're so uh, emotionally touched when they are come to when they come to our events so basically yeah and uh, i think that one of our goals in the future is for sure to uh, continue doing uh, events like that and uh, not only to do events with uh, hundreds of people but also in some uh, smaller circles like 20 to 30 people where where we would take them to the woods to spend the night there without their phones, without, without anything that can uh, activate their brain, but only to uh, feel the darkness, to feel that um, vastness <laughs> of the space and of the, of the galaxies and the night sky above them. So this is one of our goals for the future. And um, Right now, we are like uh, trying to get more attention to our NGO for donations, and we developed some concept. We call it in Serbian Osvezdise, because uh, in Serbian, when you say Osvezdise, it means raise your awareness. And Zvezda is star. So basically, it's kind of a mixture mm. of words. In English, it would mm. sound like sterify yourself, <laughs> mm. something like that. Yeah, so we are providing, some, uh, we are making some candles of soy wax and something like that, so that that candles can bring them back to the periods when we had no lighting and uh, where they can uh, kind of uh, be grateful for. Uh, the darkness around them and uh, it's also kind of a brand where we would like to put those badges and those uh, candles or whatever and to say to everyone come to your senses and go back to the stars the, the, the reduction in stimulus you know what you said there when mm. 
yeah. reduction, reduction in, in stimulus, stimulus yeah. right? It leads to yeah. uh, positive outcomes, right? It's almost like the, the, the real pan, I don't want to get into that, but there's an epidemic, say, of overstimulation. Like that's an epidemic. Totally, yeah. You know, like people are just yes. constantly, it's like being on a, a, a mental roller coaster over and over and over again. Yeah. And yeah, it was fun the first time. Yeah, it was cool the second time. Now you've been on the roller coaster for, you know, 7,652 days. And yeah. you getting people off that is very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. We, uh, we also uh, don't like to play music or anything. Uh, when we are walking, we are just walking and talking, not doing anything else. When we are sitting and waiting for a telescope to stargaze at the sky, we, we just don't um, let people play their music or be too loud. We just want them to be in stillness. I, I love what you said about a shared vulnerability in the darkness, you know, and it's so the opposite of what's happening, which is that, you know, we're all behind our, our phones um, on social media showing the most like perfect life ever. And, you know, I, I will show you this beautiful angle of my face and the most lovely family photo. And there's, there's a lack of shared vulnerability that's been happening. But when you're in the dark and you're around a fire and you're cuddled up next to a new friend um, and you hear something behind you, you're both going to jump and comfort each other. And this is sort of a, a lack of experience that we have in that way. And, and what's so funny is about light. Well, you know, we think of light as sort of being this liberating experience, but it shows every last thing in your environment. And when the lights are off, things melt away. And suddenly there's just actually a more limitless environment around you. So it's counterintuitive how the lit environment is actually very limiting. And I just love how you talk about it in terms of a shared vulnerability at night. We are yeah. coming up on an hour. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners at Starving for Darkness? Mm, starve for darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Stay hungry. Be, be relentless when uh, protecting the dark and uh, just make sure you have a really good community and to build a really good community that you will share with your enthusiasm for darkness. Well, we thank you so much for building your community and we just hope to make a difference alongside you. Thank you. Thank Diana. you very much. It was really nice to talk to you. Psst. Psst. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been able to rattle that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs, they're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare, and that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits the profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.